The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Lord, you've written to us in Psalm 25, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Oh, that is your word to us. Good and upright are you, and therefore you teach. Your nature is one such that you want us to know, to know you and to know your way. It's your goodness to us, your grace. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would inhabit this place where you have gathered some of your people together. You would inhabit this place and you would open our ears to hear your teaching. And you would open my mouth to convey it. Father, commission your spirit to run in this place. To carry your word, to strike us with it, to make it clear and plain. Minister your word to us that we would know you and know your way and be changed. As was already prayed, Lord, I pray that again. Would you change us? Would you grip us and move us from where we are? Lord, I pray that for your people gathered around the world today, that you would speak to them through your word and that you would move them and change them and bring great glory to your Son because of it. Do that here in this place, we pray. For the glory of Christ. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Three weeks ago, we left off in the middle of chapter 18 with Paul in the city of Corinth. He had come there, you'll recall, from Athens. He'd moved over a little bit to the west to Corinth. He'd come afraid, but he'd come. Corinth was a, a large metropolitan city, widely known for its wealth, for its arrogance, and for its sexual promiscuity. It's a place that was a little uncomfortable to come to, but he, but he came and he continued to speak there, and there was some success and some opposition. And so one night in the, in the middle of the evening, the Lord spoke to him in a vision to give him encouragement. And he said to him, we see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18, speak. Speak and keep on speaking, Paul. Continue to make me an issue here. Why? Because I am with you. It's not just some, some teaching. He's saying, I personally am with you, Paul, and I'm up to something that I will not allow to be thwarted. I am carrying out my work here to draw in my own and save them, and I'm going to keep doing that until it's done, and so I'm going to stand you up and protect you, so speak. And Paul heard that, and he did. Spoke for another 18 months or so, which led to more success and more opposition and led to a court case, which Paul won. And there was, an, there was an umbrella of protection dropped over him from the Roman Empire, in fact. And so he stayed a little while longer. That's where we left him, in the middle of chapter 18. And today, after two years there in the city of Corinth, they're transitioning, moving on to what will be about three years of ministry in the city of Ephesus. So in some ways, our passage today is between those two long stays in those two cities. It's a bit of a transition passage. 
of a travelogue, if you will. But there still is something here for us to learn, to see and to comprehend, to grasp about God's grace and our embracing of that. It's my hope this morning that you will see in this text the kindness and the grace of God subtly at work to bring to you, His people, the ministry of the Word. And that in seeing His grace, you'll, you'll be moved by that and you will more firmly grab hold of that ministry. And it will overcome your opposition to it, your resistance to it, your oversight of it, perhaps. You would see the kindness of God here and you would grab hold of His Scriptures and not let go of them. It's my hope for this morning. In the second half of Acts chapter 18, let me read the text. 18, verse 18 through 28. After this, after the trial, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancreia, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. After the favorable court verdict in Corinth, he stayed there for a little while longer and then eventually leaves and is going to head back to his home church in the city of Antioch, the church that had sent sent him out. But he's got a few places to stop first. Read there about Sincrea and how he had shaved his hair, hair off there because of a vow. And some people read that and have wondered, what is Paul doing acting so Jewish? Because what he's doing there is very similar to several things taught in the Old Testament to to Jewish people to do. Shouldn't Paul, who knows better, not do that kind of thing? Well, we've got to understand something. Once the theology has been made clear, those things were done in the Old Testament and were widely misunderstood, but once the theology has been made clear that vows and oaths and rituals of various sorts do not earn one any degree of grace, They don't earn you grace. That's a contradiction in terms, in fact, to earn grace. Grace is, by definition, undeserved, unearned, unmerited. You can't earn any grace by a vow or a ritual or some sort of a performance. 
But once that theology is made clear, then you're freed up to do all kinds of things like vows and rituals and oaths because some of them might actually be helpful. Think of fasting today. The Bible expects that we would fast, not so that we can earn grace. Like, if we do this, then we earn some brownie points with God. There's a relationship there that I do A and you then provide B. That's not true. But once that theology is made clear, fasting can be very helpful. Fasting can get us in touch with our finite, fallen bodies that are decaying. You go without eating for a few days and you realize how weak you are. Gives you a little more time to pray. It can focus your mind. There can be a lot of benefit from fasting as long as you understand I'm not earning any grace. Paul gets that. So he carries on, makes a vow, and then shaves his hair. And he's probably headed to Jerusalem to complete the vow, just as he'd been taught in Judaism. He understands it better now. But he made a vow. It's okay. Might even be helpful for us. So he's basically bald when he sets sail from Sincrea and goes to Ephesus. And he has with him Priscilla and Aquila. Two folks that he'd lived with and ministered with for two years there in Corinth, and they're now his ministry partners. They go with him to Ephesus. And notice something here. From this point on, now usually Priscilla's name is mentioned first. This is a married couple. Aquila is a male name. Priscilla is now most frequently mentioned first. It was the other way around when they were first introduced. But now, not every time, but usually the wife, which was unusual, is mentioned in the prominent place in this relationship. Potentially a couple reasons for that. One of them we're going to come to a little later, but it's interesting to note that from here out, she's first. They sail off and they land in Ephesus. We'll have more to say about Ephesus next week when we come back to there, but suffice it to say for now that Ephesus is another one of those cities that Paul loves to plant churches in. It's a major city. It's a crossroads of, of economics and people. It's diverse, it's wealthy, central to the surrounding area, and he's got to have a church there. The gospel has to be known there. And so he, he stops there. Even though he's going on to somewhere else, he stops there to kind of survey the land, goes into the synagogue, begins to reason there a little bit, he even receives a warm reception, but he can't stay because he's got to go somewhere else. And he moves on, and then we get the travel log where he moves through Judea to Jerusalem to Syria and then back around, basically trying to explain to us how it is that next chapter he's back in Ephesus. We leave Paul there. Meanwhile, there's a particular Jew named Apollos who shows up in Ephesus. And there are several things that are told us about Apollos. He's from Alexandria. Alexandria was a significant city, the second largest city in all of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome. There are probably between five and 800,000 people who live in this city. It's massive. And it was widely known as a center for learning, for culture, for education, and that's displayed here in Apollos. He is Alexandrian to the T. He's described as being eloquent, which doesn't necessarily mean that he uses flowery speech. Maybe, but what it's more focusing on is that he is able to stand up and publicly go back and forth with people, to dialogue with them, to, to take a position and to argue it intelligently. We might say that he was quick on his feet, he was sharp, able to argue something. He was educated, so he had a lot to draw from, and he could hear arguments and see holes in them and reason back and forth. You can see how that would be helpful for what he's going to do. 
And because he's from Alexandria, there was a very large Jewish population from long time back in Alexandria, and he had been raised in that culture, taught the Scriptures well. And at this point in history, to be taught the Scriptures certainly means the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. And he knew enough to accurately teach the way of Jesus. He knew what would be the heart of the New Testament as well. He knew the baptism of John. He knew the way of Jesus which surely means that he'd heard about how John had come preaching a baptism of repentance, pointing out then finally, this one is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus. He knew enough of that, and to say he spoke the word about Jesus accurately, he must also have talked about the cross and the resurrection. So he knows a lot about the Old Testament, a lot about the heart of the gospel. He's eloquent, and he is fervent in spirit. It's words used in Romans to describe someone who is gripped by something, gripped by God. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's an enthusiastic pulpit pounder, but it means that he's gripped. Something controls him and there's a fire in him. The gospel has not just come to him as information, it has grabbed hold of him. We're meant to see this description of Apollos and think, this man is a remarkable teacher and preacher a strong tool in God's hands, eloquent, knowledgeable of the Scriptures, gripped by the gospel, and he stands up to boldly preach in Ephesus. And interestingly, even with all those remarkable abilities and gifts, he's made out of clay because there's stuff he doesn't know. And as Priscilla and Aquila sit there and listen to him preach, they probably had a mixture of a whoa and... Maybe a little bit we might add there. They listen to him preach, and, and they're, they're impressed. They recognize the hand of God on him, and they see the holes. And so Priscilla and Aquila, she's mentioned first, Priscilla and Aquila call him over to their house in private and fill in the blanks. She takes the lead in that too. She's the prominent one mentioned, which is unusual but biblically permissible. The Bible does restrict, the Bible does limit the public and corporate teaching of the Scriptures to qualified men. Not just all men, but to qualified men. There's a, there's a small subset that are allowed to do that publicly and corporately, but privately and personally, the same restrictions don't apply. Privately and personally, we Christians are to be encouraging one another constantly on towards love and good deeds, to be one anothering each other, to make sure that we don't fall into the deceitfulness of sin. We are, as a body on an individual personal level, to be engaging one another, sharpening one another. She's perfectly within her rights to do this. And she does. And Apollos learns. It's further equipped and further strengthened and further built up. And then finally, for one reason or another, he decides, I want to go to Achaia, which is Corinth, the city that Priscilla and Aquila and Paul just came from. He wants to go back there. And so they give him a letter of recommendation. He goes over, and verse 27 says that he arrived there and was of great help to those who through grace had believed. Notice there how the, the Christians, the church there is described. It's a minor point, but again, every time the Bible pauses to explain where belief comes from, it puts it in the same place. 
those who through grace had believed. Belief comes from somewhere. Belief comes from grace, an undeserved, unmerited, unearned gift leads to belief. And it is fiction to think that everybody receives that same gift. These are people who through grace had believed. The grace had moved them to belief. If you want to put it really simply, faith is a gift. Faith comes from grace. It's the Christians there. And he was of great help to them. So great of a help so strongly and so helpful was his arguing as, it, as he opened up the scriptures in public and refuted all of their opponents and lifted up Christ and showed him to be the fulfillment of all that God had been doing to save. He did that publicly and it was such a great help that some in that church, we read in 1 Corinthians, some in that church regarded Apollos as on the same level as Peter and Paul, the apostles. He was such a help to them. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I planted the church for sure, Apollos watered it. God made it grow. Now, of course, Paul would say, God planted the church through me. God watered it through Apollos. God's the one who gave the growth. But Paul thinks Apollos did an excellent job, was of great help there, more so than Priscilla and Aquila, who were there for several years themselves. He credits Apollos with building the church. That's the text. It's a travel log of sorts, a transition passage, particularly relating to Paul. The second half of the passage focuses on the ministry of Apollos, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. As I said, my hope is that in looking at the ministry of Apollos, that you will see the grace and the kindness of God as he is working through many different circumstances to give the ministry of the word to give it to his people. You would see his kindness and his grace in that, and it would draw you to him and draw you to the word. So let me put it in a sentence here. Here's the main point for this morning. I'll give it to you as a command. Main point. Embrace the grace of God in the ministry of the word. Embrace the grace of God in the ministry of the Word. He is doing something. He is giving the ministry of the Word, which is His grace. Embrace that. Don't resist it. Don't turn away from it. Don't overlook it. So there are two halves there, what God's doing and we are to respond, how we are to respond. Those are the two observations I'm going to make now. We'll start with God. What's God doing here? In grace, as I said, God provides the ministry of the Word for the life of His people. He's doing something. He's providing. He's giving the ministry of the Word, not just because, but for a purpose, for the life of His people. He's doing something there. It's His grace to us. It's what He gives to His sheep, His church in many different ways throughout all the stages of our relationship with Him. From the very beginning all the way through our deaths, He, deaths, he gives us this ministry, ministry of the Word. I've used that term a couple times. Let me explain it so that we're all on the same page. The ministry of the Word is the teaching, the explaining, the opening up of the revelation of God. So what God has revealed to himself, about himself, we call it his word, his Bible, 
the scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, God's revelation to us, his word. The ministry of that word is serving it up, if you will, making it plain and clear, helping it to be applied to us so that we are affected by it, so that we connect with it. It connects with us. It changes us. This ministry is, is widely multifaceted. Preaching, as long as the person's preaching the scriptures, obviously preaching would be one of the ministries of the word. But so is teaching in a Sunday school class of any age. So is worship music, as long as it's centered on the scriptures. If it's not, feel free to voice a concern there to Nathan, not to me. <laughs> it should be centered on the scriptures. And so should be your your personal family devotional time as you explain a passage to your family sitting around the table, ministry of the word. As you're sharing the gospel with a neighbor, you're ministering the word. You're opening it up and making it clear. So there are many facets to the ministry of the word. The thing they have in common is the word. You're making God's revelation clear to people. And this ministry is profound. It is a crucial gift of grace from God to us because it's foundational. It's how he gives from the very beginning. It's how he gives spiritual life to his people. Think of James 1, verse 18. James 1, 18 says, by his own will, that is the will of God, by the free, sovereign will of God, God chooses to give to his people life by the word of truth. James 1, 18. How does he birth his people? By the word of truth doesn't happen apart from the scriptures. Salvation is connected intimately to this, made clear. Must happen. That's why he told Paul, speak. And Paul, it says, in verse 17, stayed for another year and a half teaching the word of God, ministering the word that people might be saved. The scriptures make clear to us things we would not know otherwise. They make clear to us who we really are. We're prone to cloud that over. They make clear to us who God is. They make clear to us especially how God has designed a solution to this alienation between us and him. We're separated from him by our sin. How does that get fixed? The scriptures tell us we would never dream it up on our own. The scriptures make clear his loving mercy at the cross. We would never know it otherwise. The Word is critical at the very beginning of our lives. It's how we are saved. And so moving to our passage today, we're moving past the planting of the church. It's in the broader context, hinted at in verse 27. So moving to our passage for today, we're moving beyond birthing to building the church, to sustaining and nourishing the spiritual lives of the people of God. And to see where I get this thought, you have to realize something about the purpose of this passage. It's very easy to read a few verses like this, kind of like some sort of a a simple news story. There was a guy from a certain city. He was named such and such. He had certain abilities and gifts and background, and he moved over here, and he met some people, and some things happened. He moved over there. End of story. Just the facts, ma'am. God doesn't give us history like that. There's something bigger going on. I need to step back a little bit to see the bigger picture. This exists in a context. By this point in chapter 18, God has planted the church in Corinth 
by the ministry of the Word. And what's going on now is that he is providing for the growing of that church by the ministry of the Word. This is from Acts chapter 17. God, who's God? God is the sovereign one who determines the allotted periods and places of mankind's living and acting. That's from Acts 17. God determines who, what, where, when. The fact that this guy was born in Alexandria, in Alexandria, so that he would get that kind of education with those gifts, so that he'd hear the gospel. And God determined that he would go to Ephesus, where he had also brought along Priscilla and Aquila, so that this guy's education could be rounded out. And then he sent him on to Corinth. The providence of God controlling all the circumstances of life to move a person from here to here, equipping him along the way so that he can get there and build the church by the ministry of the Word. What's God trying to do for Corinth? Take them a minister of the Word who will open up the Scriptures to them and help them grow. That's what this passage is showing us. It's not primarily teaching us that we should be like Apollos and be fervent. Yeah, Apollos was fervent, yes. It's not primarily teaching us that we should know the Scriptures well like Apollos did. Sure we should, of course, but it's trying to show us God at work. God who is sovereign, moving heaven and earth, moving people all across the Mediterranean so as to bring to his people the Scriptures. He knows the church in Corinth is pressured faces a lot of opposition. And we know from reading the letters to Corinth that it itself was not especially mature. He knows that. And he does not take them all to heaven immediately. And he doesn't remove the opposition. And he doesn't instantaneously sanctify all of them. And he doesn't just leave them alone either. He works to bring them the word. That's his grace. That's his grace at work to solve their problems by bringing them his scriptures. Why? Because in bringing them the scriptures, he brings them himself and his way. Remember Psalm 25, you are kind and gracious and so you teach us your way. God is at work to do that, and we are meant to read this and see His grace moving in providence to bring us the Scriptures and to stand back and trust Him and marvel at His grace and His power, to be thankful for it. He does that. He does that today. I encountered just this sort of thing this week myself. Recently, I've been, I've been kind of struggling, fighting for freshness in my relationship with God. It's there, I'm, I'm engaging with Him, but it's just not alive. I'm missing something, and I've been wanting more. But I'm, I'm moving through life day by day, and then this week, unexpectedly, somebody calls me and asks if we can get together. And so we do. And we're talking, and it's a good conversation. It's, it's fine, but nothing really remarkable. And towards the end of this conversation, this person, we're talking, and loans me a Christian book. 
which looked kind of interesting, so I took it and began to thumb through it. And as I sat down and, and began to look at it and read some things, I felt encouraged, and in little ways there was something kind of flickering inside me that said, yes, that's true, praise God for that, amen, I'm, I'm liking this, it's kind of helping a little bit. And then I was shocked, wide awake, by a few sentences. And I looked back at the front of it and looked at the guy's name and said, I know this guy. I know the author of this book. That's amazing. Not because of the particular truths he was articulating, but because it was him articulating them. This guy is saying these things. And I had just the smallest little bit of influence in the environment that shaped him to come to know and believe these things. Praise God for your work. Providentially steering his path and my path so that they would cross and then years later bringing our paths back across so that now he would encourage me by writing these things that I already know but come to grab me in a different way as I see God's grace at work in his life and then it works in my life. And I'm stirred, I'm changed by that. He brings to me what I need. He ministered the word to me through a book written by a guy that I hadn't thought about in years. God does that sort of thing to bring what we need the scriptures in all kinds of different ways, in ways that will encourage us and, and challenge us and shock us even, he does that sort of thing. In grace, he brings to his people the ministry of the word because we need the word. So long for it. Embrace it when it comes. It's going to come in all kinds of different ways, but praise Him and thank Him and embrace this gracious gift of the ministry of the Word when He brings it. And right there, that bumps us into a problem, which is the second point. The second observation here deals with our response to this. The, the first point is what the passage is, is showing us. God working to bring the word to build up the church that he already planted. Not abandoning them, he's going to build them by the scriptures. That's what the passage is showing us. How should we respond to that? Seeing that then, we should, here's the second point, take care that you do not despise the grace of God in the ministry of the word. Take care care that you do not despise the ministry of God, the grace of God in the ministry of the Word. That's our problem. It's great and nice and, and good to talk about what I was just saying, that God brings the Scriptures to us, and He's so kind to give us life through the Word and then to build us up with the Word. He speaks to us through the Scriptures. We need the Bible. Great. It's, it's so nice and, and common for us to talk like that. But when it gets right down to it, the all-too-common reality is that we are often either too proud or too preoccupied to listen. God stands there with his hands extended 
in grace, holding out the ministry of the word, saying, here's what you need, and I work through all these circumstances to bring it to you, to put it right in front of you. And we see that, and then often in our pride or in our preoccupation, we turn away, refusing to listen to it, or just kind of caught up in other things and leave him, hands extended, in grace, but unconnected. Don't do that. Take care not to do that. Or to put it positively, that's negatively, to put it positively, love and long for the ministry of the Word. Long to sit under it. Long to live in it. Love it when it comes. Take it wherever you can get it. And seek to be a minister to other people with the Word. Seeing how God is so concerned and will go through so much to bring to us the Word, do you not see how great of an evil it is to despise His grace? It's covered in the cross. If you're a Christian, it's covered in the cross, praise God. But it is still an evil to say, no, thank you, I don't need it, I don't want it. Don't do that. Sometimes, though, it's right where we are. We're too proud to humble ourselves beneath the ministry of the Word, especially because that so often involves another human being as the mouthpiece. And we human beings have a difficulty of sitting under other human beings, of saying, I need you to inform me. That does not go over easy with us. But we need to Get beyond that because God uses mouthpieces. All kinds of different people. You know how this passage would have been played out in some settings today. We would have been sitting in the synagogue in Ephesus when this hotshot from our town walked in and began to talk. And we would have realized, yeah, you got some abilities and whatnot, but we would have soon moved those aside when we began to see the holes. Who in the world do you think this guy is? He doesn't even know what he's talking about. I've been with Paul. I know. I should be the one teaching. That would happen today. Or put the shoe in the other foot, put yourself in Apollos' place when the woman and her blue-collar husband come up to you after the sermon with some thoughts. <laughs> Who does this woman think she is? And this guy who makes tents for a living. I've been educated in the best schools in the world. Now, it might not be quite that brazen. Our overt disdain might not show through that clearly. It might not look that ugly, but it's there and it is that ugly. That's in us. We look at that, and we respond to people telling us things just like that. Now, we, we so often, we determine who we're going to listen to before they say anything. Do you have the right degree, and are you from the right perspective? Then I'll listen to what you teach. Or are you of a certain class or standing or gender? Then I'll listen to you. Or we, we determine what kind of message we'll, we'll buy into. 
I'll listen to messages that are inclusive and that are nice and soft before, long before the argument actually comes out and we examine the facts. It's pride. That'll keep you away from God's grace in the ministry of the Word. Don't go there. I am not saying that there is no point in evaluating what a teacher's saying. If you're listening, you must be discerning. And at some point, a teacher's errors disqualify that person from being a teacher. That's all clear, granted. But what I am saying is that we are prone to prejudge. She's a woman. He's of such a stature. They have this kind of education. I have this kind of education. I make this kind of a salary. I work for this kind of company. I know And you might just miss the fact that these simple people have been with the apostle and can tell you something that you don't know, you don't know. Take care that pride does not keep you away from the grace of God given in this word. God speaks here and you must listen to it. Read it for yourself. Listen to people expound it. You must hear it. It is His grace to give it to you. Don't let your pride lead you to despise the grace of God, and don't let preoccupation do so either. I think this is probably a little more common for us. We're busy with everything else. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you'd been there in Corinth, knowing all the backstory about how long before there even was a church in Corinth, God was preparing to provide for the church in Corinth by raising up Apollos. Knowing all of that and what God had done to move this man and teach him and train him and raise him up and gift him and bring him here, if he'd arrived in town and there'd been a welcome for him, and then when he first stood up to preach in the synagogue or opened up the scriptures in the the Sunday school class at the local church, if the Corinthian Christians had said, I'm glad you're here, but there's a play over in the amphitheater this afternoon. I'm not going to be able to make it. I got tickets. Or he'd come to their home to, to teach and to explain something about Christ and, and the Scriptures, and they'd said, you know, I really appreciate that, and I marvel at what all you know, but it's been a long week of work, and I really need some downtime to be with my family and to relax. I'm not going to make it. Or if you had a little catchier musical accompaniment, then maybe. I am not saying, again, the qualifier, I am not saying that there is no place for rest and sleep and time with family. There's no time ever that you should go to the play. There are seasons for that and times for that, clearly. But brothers and sisters, get this straight. It is sin to supplant the ministry of the Word with the things of the world. It is sin to regularly, consistently replace Bible intake, yourself or from others, with all the other stuff out there. That might cross some people. The first time I thought about that, it was convicting to me. Are you saying I can never go to the the play? No, I'm not saying that. I just said that disqualifier. I'm not saying that. 
But the problem, if, if we're honest, if we're real honest, the problem is that we don't study the scriptures and take in the ministry of the word and go do these other things. We do them instead of. How many of us, the argument for why you don't know the scriptures better, why you don't study them, why you don't teach them is you don't have time. How many of us, I'll raise my hand, don't raise your hands, but <laughs> we all say that and we all have found time to watch the Olympics. That's true. We have been intimately engrossed in the 4x100 semifinal relay with 32 women you've never heard of and will never see again. I watched the whole marathon. <laughs> At least as much of it was on TV. Goodness, nothing changed. <laughs> I mean, she led by 50 seconds the whole time. <laughs> we do that. We're too busy with other stuff, preoccupied, and so we miss what God has worked to give to us. When he's holding his hands out to offer, here's my word, I'm in it, my ways in it, and my goodness and kindness, I give it to you, and we say, yeah, I'm busy. Do you see that that is evil? Bless God covered by the cross, but take care not to do that. I read a story once. Uh, of a pastor, this is from, he was many years ago a pastor, trying to make a similar point in the middle of a sermon to his congregation. For effect, he took on the first person, speaking as if he were God, to the people gathered before him. And he said to them, I have given you my book. Why do you not care to read it? I have given you my word, informing you of my mind and my heart and my grace and my love and my holiness. Why do you not care to have it explained and made clear to you? Is it really of such little importance to you? Do you really believe that you have all that you need in yourselves and here in this world and, th and that you have what you need for the next? It would seem so. And so I think I will take my book back and close it up from you and see how life goes for you. And for effect, the pastor in the middle of the sermon closed his closed his Bible, and walked out. Now, of course, almost everybody there had their own Bible, so it wasn't literally he's taking the Bible away from them, but he's trying to make a point. And as they sit there looking at now an empty pulpit in the middle of a church where it's just ground to a halt, he's trying to make a point, and the point struck home, and many of the congregation began to weep. Because they realized that not too many years before, their forefathers had not had the Bible in their native language. It had been kept from them, and life had fallen apart in their nation and in their families. And when they had tried to get it back, they had been killed for reading it in their own language. But a familiarity had bred a certain bit of contempt. And they had it now on their shelves and in their laps and over there on the end table, and they did not avail themselves of it. And they were struck by that. I wonder if familiarity has bred a certain kind of contempt for us as well. Most of us have more Bibles than we know what to do with. The grace of God has put the Bible in my own language. And I watched the marathon. 
It's okay to watch the marathon. Get my point, though. There are still countries in the world today where you will be killed for reading the Bible, for printing the Bible, for handing the Bible out. And those of us who have it really don't care. Take care that you not despise the ministry of the Word, that you not despise the grace of God, but rather embrace it. We regularly need to be watered. If you're a Christian, you've been planted and you're starting to grow, but you live in an arid climate and you need to be watered every day, regularly. From the moment he birthed you, you were spiritually born and you are growing anew all over again. Praise God for that. But this side of heaven, you and I will never completely escape our fallenness and our finiteness. We are fallen people still prone to sin with sin natures. And we are finite people who still don't know everything, suffer from ignorance, from our limited perspective, from what our culture teaches us. We are finite and fallen. And because of that, still, moment by moment, we cannot live on bread alone. We are in need of every word that comes from the mouth of God. And He has given it to us in His Scriptures, written down in your native language, in your lap right now. Take care with that. He knows what we need. He knows that we are sorely challenged and he has moved heaven and earth to give it to us. Because in it especially, he teaches us his way, but in it especially, he shows us himself and his glory for which our souls were made. The goodness of the Lord. Do not despise that, but embrace it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Drink up the pure spiritual milk that comes to you in the Word, that by it you may grow up in salvation. He is better and more precious than anything else you can imagine. And He makes Himself available in the Scriptures. Take and eat. Drink. He's right there. Embrace the grace of God in the ministry of the Word, that Word which is life to you. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimony. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Let's pray. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Father, I'm aware how much I'm preaching to myself with this. I spend time in your word, but not what I should and not what I want to. Forgive me. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. And Lord, stir in my heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here 
stir in us a, a marveling at and, and a loving of your grace that gives us your word. That controls providence that we would have the scriptures. That we would have so many good teachers of the scriptures that we can find all around us. You've been very kind. Let us see that in turn and embrace what you have given. Move in my brothers' and sisters' hearts here, I pray. And Father, I pray for those here who do not know you. Would you convict them of pride as they resist your word? Would you create in them desire to know what you say and who you are? Instruct sinners in the way. Sinners who are believers and sinners who are not believers. Instruct us all in your mercy and grace. I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.